The Waterford-born Murphy was certainly a proper Irishman, a Patrick married to a Bridget no less, but he was no rebel. In fact, he had spent his teenage years faithfully serving in the Royal Navy. Knowing that appeals to the pilot's Irish roots would prove fruitless, the insurgents turned to sabotage. While the Irish Republican Army mobilized, the USS Michigan's assistant engineer James Kelly introduced Murphy to the attractions of Buffalo's waterfront. Fueled by cigars, liquor, and the company of a lady friend, the pair indulged in debauchery inside a string of seedy saloons. As Kelly and Murphy staggered down Main Street singing The Wearing of the Green, the powerless Bryson stewed as his warship remained tethered to the dock. You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast. My name is Nick Tony. I'm your host. Today, we're recording from the Irish American Heritage Museum in Albany on Broadway, right across from the SUNY Administration Building. Uh, and my guest is Christopher Klein. Christopher is an admitted history geek, um, the author of several books. I think you've written for the New York Times, Boston Globe, uh, other, several other publications, but He's here to speak about his book, uh, a new book called When the Irish Invaded Canada, The Incredible True Story of the Civil War Veterans Who Fought for Ireland's Freedom. Christopher, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. Uh, So let me just say right up front that this is an extremely good book, and I enjoyed it very much. I read it over the course of the weekend. It looks like a big book. It is, but it doesn't read like one. Uh, there's a very good narrative and a lot of great characters that sort of drive this story. So um, we're going to get into a few of those characters. But I think to sort of set this up, um, when I talked to a few friends about this this weekend, they said, when what happened to what? <laughs> uh, so let's sort of just uh, very basic level. Um, I think the the best place to start is... And we can work ourselves back a little bit, then go forward. The Great Hunger. Yeah. And why the Irish call it the Great Hunger as opposed to, as we knew it, at least I did growing up, as the Great Famine. Right. So if we were going to use today's parlance, we would say that the Irish who end up attacking Canada were radicalized by their experiences living under the British. And this is the thing to keep in mind that when... The Irish Americans are plotting this attack. Canada is a province of Great Britain, so it's part it's part of the British Empire. Ireland has been a colony of Great Britain for 700 years. And for 700 years, the Irish have seen the English try to erode their culture, their religion, their language. And then when the potato crop fails in the 1840s and 1850s, there are some militant Irish who think that the English are trying to exterminate them altogether. And you will not see as many references now as there was 20 years ago to, you know, potato famine. And the reason why is because um, to a lot of the Irish, a famine connotes that there was a lack of food. But at the time that the Irish needed every piece of food that they could have after the failure of the potato crop, which they subsisted on. Uh, Ireland was still growing wheat, barley, oats, and those were being exported to other places of the British Empire rather than being used to feed uh, the starving Irish. And the Irish, um, I, I mean, this, this is, the stat is incredible <laughs> to the point that every time I use it, I have an editor who immediately flags it and says, no. This can't be true. But the average Irish male would eat the equivalent of 14 pounds of potatoes a day. Oh. It's, what they, it's what they grew. So they had potatoes for breakfast, had potatoes for lunch, had potatoes for dinner. Um, that's the way that the land system was set up. That's the only thing that could be grown on these small plots that the Irish were allowed to farm. That's what they, they lived on. Um, and when that failed, they had no more food. Yet um, in other larger farms and under the tenant system that they're growing these other cash crops, those are still being exported out of the country. Right. So, and, and the famine or the hunger takes place. And again, the, the Irish think the British are helping this occur by not bringing food in or not bringing in enough food for them to, to eat and, and survive. Yeah. So you end up having 1 million Irish who die, 2 million who are forced to flee the island. And the initial response by the, by the British government was, was pretty good. But then, 
there was a change in government, and the thought was that that initial British government was being was interfering with the natural course of market economics, and they should just let nature take its course and not intercede. And so these devotees of laissez-faire capitalism gain the upper hand, and when they do so, uh, they really change the whole aid structure, and they make the Irish pay for their own relief efforts, and they make tenant the the British tenants uh, or the British landlords pay for their tenants' care too. And so in a lot of instances, it was cheaper for a landlord to pay for their tenants' passage to North America than it was to pay for their care at one of the local workhouses. So you have a lot of Irish who have to flee to North America, flee to the United States, but they're they're a different kind of newcomer to this country because they are refugees from the humanitarian crisis. And in a lot of instances, this wasn't necessarily their their choice. They they wanted to remain in their homeland. They they didn't necessarily see they weren't viewing the United States as a beacon of freedom that they wanted to go to. Um, they just merely wanted to eat, and that that's what drives them to this country. And you have a lot of people, particularly young men, coming of age uh, in this period. And one of them is James Stevens, who. Again, one of these great characters that you have, um, and he, he's throughout the book. Uh, can you talk a little bit about James Stevens, uh, uh, his experience uh, in Ireland, and how he becomes radicalized? Yes. Yeah, so James Stevens uh, is a member of an organization called Young Ireland. And this was as much of a group that wanted to have a political revolution against the British as much as um, it was a cultural movement, too. Um, a lot of celebration of traditional Irish culture that that they were involved in. Uh, so, so James Stevens is drawn into this Young Ireland rebellion, and he is participating in it. And it's just um, it's poor timing. They try to launch a revolution in 1848. Ireland's just trying to survive. It you know it it, it can't doesn't have the strength to conduct a revolution. Uh, but James Stevens is involved in a shootout with the local police who uh, he shot twice and the, the police leave him for dead on the side of the road. And it's one of these things that sort of ripped right out of like a Mark Twain novel that James Stevens then goes and fakes his own death. <laughs> so his obituary runs in the local Kilkenny uh, moderator newspaper. His father will carry a coffin laden with rocks and bury it in a local cemetery. And the British authorities think that James Stevens, this revolutionary leader, is dead. But he's on the lam across the mountains of Ireland, and he will eventually disguise himself, make passage to England, cross England, actually spends a night across the street from Buckingham Palace right under the nose of Queen Victoria uh, before escaping to Paris. And James Stevens will... Never let go of this revolutionary fire. Um, after the Great Hunger is over, he returns to Ireland in 1856 and decides that the country is ready for another go uh, at a revolution. And he will found on St. Patrick's Day, 1858, a group called the Irish uh, Republican Brotherhood, uh, which will be a movement uh, to to launch the next revolution in Ireland. This movement gains momentum in the United States, uh, eventually known as the Fenian uh, Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going on in the U.S. that fosters this this movement? Uh, another great aspect of your book is all the, the American politics that are playing out with the Irish sort of right in the middle of everything. Yep. Uh, can you talk about how the Irish seem in some ways to thrive because of the setting, the American setting? So James Stevens had uh, one of his close colleagues in the Young Ireland Revolution. His name was John O'Mahony. And they fought together in the Young Ireland Rebellion in 1848. And O'Mahony will live with Stevens in exile in Paris. And then O'Mahony decides that he's going to go to the United States. And when James Stevens forms the IRB in Ireland in 1858, later that year, John Omani, at a ceremony at Tammany Hall in New York City, will form the Fenian Brotherhood, which will be a sister organization to it. And the idea is that free from 
British oversight in the United States with freedom of assembly, freedom of the press. John Omani is going to lobby the, the Irish exiles in America to raise money, purchase weapons, and they're going to ship them back to James Stevens, who's going to be raising the manpower uh, for the revolution back in Ireland. And what really sort of fuels this organization in the United States is that when the Irish arrive in the United States, they encounter much of the same discrimination that they were subject to under the British. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a country founded on Puritans and pilgrims who are looking to get away from the Catholic Church, any vestiges of the Catholic Church and Protestant ceremonies. And then here come hundreds of thousands of Irish Catholics just flooding into this country. So a city like Boston, which was a city of 100,000 people, all of a sudden has 40,000 Irish Catholics who are just flooding in, and it causes, you know, uh, it overloads social institutions. It causes this backlash, this uh, which is really capped by the, the know-nothings, the, the American party, anti-immigrant uh, American party that, that really takes hold in the 1850s. So the Irish sort of react as they had for 700 years. The way that they had survived 700 years of colonization without, uh, they were subjected, but they were never colonized. And the, the, the English had long talked about the Irish problem, and the Irish problem to the English, of course, was that the Irish weren't English. So uh, it, was, it was something that they tried to anglicize them in their own image and, and weren't able to. And that's because the Irish basically clung together in these, in these tribal groups. And they did the same when they came to the United States. So uh, they clinged together in church parishes and fraternal organizations like the Ancient Order of Hibernians. And then uh, in organizations like the Fenian Brotherhood, particularly the further west you went, the further outside of cities where maybe, you know, you didn't have a church parish or a local social welfare group. And the Fenian Brotherhood is that structure uh, for the Irish to, to cling together. And in a way, the Irish in the United States became a little bit more revolutionary than the Irish who remained back in Ireland because they, you know, they encountered the hardship under the British, they encounter discrimination when they come to the United States. And then here, you know, they have their freedoms. Um, you know, they don't have to worry about any repercussions from the British, like the Irish who are plotting revolution back in, in Ireland do. And, you know, a lot of them, as we talked about, weren't necessarily coming to this country out of their free will. So, you know, it's 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 in some instances it's kind of interesting that there was more fervent revolutionary spirit among the Irish in America than there were among the Irish back in Ireland. So, so now, now not only are they the um, Irish in America getting more revolutionized, but the Civil War comes, and now many of them are getting military experience, which which plays out. But if you could talk a little bit about the numbers, I mean, did two hundred thousand Irish in the Union Army? Uh, 20,000 in the Confederate Army. Um, the first casualty of the war is an Irishman that, you know, Irishmen are fighting, they're dying, they're, they fight against each other at, at Fredericksburg. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the uh, Irish experience in the Civil War? Um, and then some of the leaders of the Fenian Brotherhood who emerged from the war? Yeah. So, I mean, this was astounding to me when doing the research. And a lot of this is there's a scholar named Damien Shields who lives in Ireland who's done, he has a whole website about the Irish in, in the Civil War and has done a lot of research in this this area. And yeah, I, I couldn't believe it. 200,000 Irish in the Union cause, 220,000 in the Confederate cause. And basically, you know, where you're fighting, whom you're fighting for is really just an object of geography, where you happen to have landed um, in the United States. So, you know, you have a lot of the Irish who landed in New Orleans and joined the Louisiana Tigers and, and are, are 
fighting for the Confederate cause and you know cities such as Savannah, Charleston. Um, so it really is just a, more a matter of geography of, of where uh, these Irish were fighting for. And for the Union cause, you know, they're not enlisting to, to free the slaves. This is not what's, what's driving them. They're, they're enlisting because, you know, this is a chance to prove their patriotism to people, who, to Americans who doubted it. Um, for most of them, it's, it's a paycheck. You know, it's, all right, well, unless, you know, the war will probably be three months, we'll uh, the Irish are still at the bottom of the economic ladder after the Panic of 1857. They're in dire financial straits. So, you know, it's a paycheck. It's it's a three-month paycheck. And, of course, the war drags on a lot more than anyone really thinks that it will. Um, but then there really are some militant members of the Fenian Brotherhood who think that, well, the Civil War would be great because we'll learn – how to use weapons. We'll learn battlefield tactics, and then we're going to take this and use it um, for the revolution back in Ireland. So they viewed the Civil War as a training ground for the, the Fenian revolution that they wanted to wage. And of course, as the war drags on, you know, the Irish are the ones who die in just great numbers uh, in, in the early years of the war. And, you know, the, the attitudes really do start to change in the second half of the Civil War. You know, the, the draft riots in New York City are pretty typical of the attitudes of the Irish towards the, the Civil War. At that point, you have a lot of resistance in um, towns in Vermont where I was doing some, some research of as well. Uh, but what, what starts to happen as the war drags on, too, is that the— the Union Army, Union Navy become recruiting grounds for the Fenian Brotherhood as well. So you will have recruiters who will go into the camps for the Army of the Potomac, the Army of the Cumberland, and they form, they refer to the their local organizations as circles. So they would form circles in these different um, regiments inside the, the, the Union Army. And and it, there's one Union scene Union in your book, I forget where it was, mm -hmm. but you have... Union Irish and Confederate yeah. Irish during the war meeting at a, a Fenian meeting. Yeah, I think this is right after the Battle of Fredericksburg. So they're in, they're, in the midst of the yeah. Civil War. Yeah. So and the, and the Battle of Fredericksburg, which is just brutal, brutal for the Irish who, who fought in the Union Army. So uh, they're making their camp uh, nearby and uh, the Fenian recruiter is allowed free passage across the Rappahannock River and he's got uh, passes from Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, and from the Confederate Secretary of State, uh, I think it's Judah Benjamin, I, I think was his name. And, you know, they have a meeting right out in the woods of, you know, on one side was guarded by Union troops, the other side was gu guarded by the Confederate troops, and men from both sides would gather, and there was no talk of the Civil War. There was only talk about what's going on with the recruitment effort back in Ireland and how the movement is going to launch that revolution. So it is just, it's astounding. The relationship between the British and the United States during the Civil War and then how it plays out in the Fenian raids is absolutely fascinating. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? So, so the, the British were neutral, uh, apparently, uh, at least in uh, officially, but there is a lot of assistance that's being given to the Confederates. They're building ships for them. Uh, they're harboring spies and, and uh, um, uh, Confederate sympathizers in Canada. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the CSS Alabama is a big yeah. part of the book. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So at the end of the Civil War, the relations between the United States and Great Britain are at their lowest point since the Redcoats torched the White House. And Queen Victoria actually writes in her diary about the prospect in 18, early 1865 of a pending war between the United States and Great Britain, and probably Great Britain wouldn't be able to hold on to Canada. And, and so that's how loud these drums of war are beating. And that's because, as you mentioned, the Great Britain declaring itself neutral during the war was to the Union side basically a tacit 
backing of the, of the Confederate cause because it allowed them to launch privateers out on the ocean. And Confederate warships were built in Liverpool and other British ports. And in some cases, they're, they're, they have crews that are half uh, Confederate, half British with British men imitating a Southern accent on board. And they're building Armstrong guns in, in Britain. So all the war machine or the Confederacy, a lot of it's being built uh, in Great Britain. And the Alabama is one of these warships and privateers that is just wreaking havoc on Union shipping all over the world for the better part of, of two years. And I think it did an estimated maybe $5 million in, in damage to the Union at that time which I think, you know, now we're talking about $500 million maybe is what it would be in equivalent terms. So there's that animosity towards Great Britain. And then at the end of the Civil War, there's also this animosity towards Canada because not only was it a haven for Union draft dodgers and escaped Confederate prisoners of war, but it's also home to a Confederate Secret Service cell that has safe haven that's operating out of Canada. And from Canada, it plots uh, the raid on St. Albans, Vermont in 1864, uh, where the Confederate raiders, about 20 of them, cross down from Canada and steal uh, tens of thousands of dollars from a bank. They actually rob another bank in, in Maine as, as well. They attempt to firebomb theaters and public spaces in New York City in the fall of 1864 that does not work as planned. And then there's a thought that they were behind, uh, involved in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln because John Wilkes Booth is supposedly spotted in Montreal a few days before the, the, the shooting. And when he is killed, there's a slip from the Royal Ontario Bank that's found on his in one of his coat pockets. So all, all this is combining to to just a lot of animosity at, at the end of the war. And um, one of the things I found really interesting in, in doing this research was I came across, so at the end of the Civil War, there's a senator from Michigan named Zach Chandler who puts together a bill that's signed by other 30 30 other senators, and what he wants to do is put together an army of 200,000 men, 100,000 from the North, 100,000 from the South, and as a way to bring the country together at the end of the Civil War, what they're going to do is they're going to invade Canada, and they're going to hold it hostage until Great Britain will pay reparations for all the damages done by the CSS Alabama and the other warships. And this is really where the Fedians come in, because they're looking to do something very similar. So... Um, why not outsource it to the Irish to, to do this and put leverage on the yes. British to pay for the reparations that the White House wants? One out. of the many great lines in your book, the British Empire had a debt to pay and the Americans uh, weren't above using the Fenians as leverage to collect the debt. Mm -hmm. You know, um, So, uh, and you just got into it a little bit there, but what there's a number of different outcomes that the Fenians are hoping for in these raids into Canada. Can you get into a little bit? Of, there's two or three of them. Yeah. Um, and then uh, they're very optimistic in a lot of ways and uh, hopeful and probably overly optimistic. Uh, they, they, they think, as you just explained, there is an appetite in America to certainly uh, go after the Canadians or the British. Um, and they think that they're going to rally uh, not only the Irish, but the um, British subjects or the the, the um, colonized in Canada to their side. Uh, if you first could talk a little bit about their idea in invading Canada, and uh, it really doesn't go well. Um, they're, they're, they have a little success, but they're not able to hold on to anything. Right. So I guess just to back up a little bit, we should say that, you know, where did, where did things go from the Fenian Brotherhood's going to raise the money and the guns for this revolution in Ireland, and now they're taking a you know a left hand turn in, into Canada. Uh, the th this idea that James Stevens and John Omani wanted of having this revolution in Ireland had been promised for years and never happened, and um, the British were able to successfully infiltrate the IRB. And in the fall of 1865, they arrest James Stevens. Uh, and in the spring of 1866, they suspend habeas corpus. 
And so this idea of launching this revolution in Ireland is is going to be dead for at least the near term um, with all the, the Fenian leaders uh, in, in jail. So it comes along at the same time that there's this growing group inside the Fenian Brotherhood who thinks that, well, why are we trying to do this all across the ocean anyway when the British literally get on a train, um, be there overnight, and walk right across into the British Empire and, and Canada and work there? So the, the thinking is that one school of thought is what they can do is maybe they will divert some of the British troops from Ireland to Canada that will make Ireland more it would be easier for the skeleton crew of the IRB to launch a successful revolution in Ireland. So that's one idea. Another idea is that what they will do is spark a war between the United States and Great Britain. So by helping out the United States, the United States will be able to gain Canada, which a lot of Americans were coveting as the next place for the country to expand. And in return, the United States will then grant Ireland its independence, seizing it from, from Great Britain. Um, there is a school of thought also, if they just gain a little bit of territory, then the United States will recognize it as a belligerent and allow it then to launch privateers to disrupt British shipping. So sort of a reverse of what the British had done for the Confederacy. And uh, essentially, Grant. Andrew Johnson lets them believe that, right? I mean, it, oh, yeah. w- what you gain, you can hold. Yeah. We'll stay out of it for exactly. a while. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the most militant Athenians think that, all right, what we can do is actually we're going to get into Canada with uh, an army of about 25,000 Irish from America. Once we cross into Canada, the Irish in America will just pour in behind us. The Irish who are in Canada, which are, you know, there's, I don't know, maybe 400,000 Irish in Canada's time, they assume would all rise up right. inside Canada to help them. They assume that all the French speakers would want to cast off the British rule as well. But it's this, this, it's this folly of American military thinking, which has started from the American Revolution up to the present day, that once the... Uh, American army will cross a border, they'll be greeted as liberators and and not as uh, the opposition. And this has been the case repeatedly when the Continental Army went up into Canada during the War of 1812. Thomas Jefferson said that taking Canada would be a mere matter of marching. And of course, it never happened. There's all these overinflated ideas of the support that they're going to get from the, from the Canadian side. And you're right in that um, that there's this meeting in the fall of 1865 between the, the Fenians and Andrew Johnson and Secretary of State William Seward, and they lay out to Johnson this idea that they're going to attack Canada, which is a flat violation of American neutrality laws. And Johnson basically, according to the Fenian account, this is the only one that we have, Johnson says he will, quote, acknowledge accomplished facts which they take to mean that he's not going to do anything to actively encourage them, but he's not going to do anything to necessarily get in their way. So if they happen to cross into Canada and seize a portion of the land, well, he's not going to really actively work to get in their way of doing that. And that's the, the is it the first raid where they don't get much, they get a Union Jack they take from uh, from an elderly man's house, I think, uh, yeah, some so shopkeeper. The, so the first raid is... Ironically, it's launched by John Amon, who has been against this whole idea of attacking Canada to begin with. But he sees that he is really losing power inside the Fenian Brotherhood. So against his better knowledge, he agrees to uh, allow his group to launch a small raid on Campobello Island uh, in New Brunswick, uh, which is you know better best known now as the summer home for FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt, but it was uh, right across from Eastport, Maine. And the idea was, all right, we'll get this island, and then that will be our base of operations then to launch our naval incursions and, and, and be a stepping stone to Ireland. And it's complete and utter disaster. I mean, it's been infiltrated by Canadian spies, British spies, American spies. They all know it's coming. So, uh, Omani gets cold feet after dispatching a boat from New York with the weapons. He basically tells it to turn around so that when his troops get to Eastport, Maine, there's no ammunition. So they basically spend two weeks loitering around uh, Passamaquoddy Bay in, in Maine. And uh, one night they go over to an island and burn down a, 
a store and a custom house. Turns out the store was owned by an American, not a <laughs> not a Brit. And they they uh, yeah they they knock on the door of the custom house uh, officer and ask for or demand the union jack and. That's what they bring back to New York, and <laughs> right. that's it. That, that's the, all they have to show for this operation, April 1866. The second raid is a little more successful. Yeah. Right? It's at the Battle of yeah. Ridgeway. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the battle and O'Neill, who sort of emerges right. from, from this raid? So this is really this is going to be the most successful foray that they, they have, and it's put together then by the splinter group inside the Fenian Brotherhood, who's led by... Uh, a man named William Roberts, but their secretary of war is Thomas William Sweeney, uh, who was veteran of the Mexican-American War, lost his right arm in that battle, still served in the Civil War, and Sherman said he was instrumental at the Battle of Shiloh, although he took two more gunshots to his left arm and another one in the leg. And Sweeney uh, puts together this this uh, invasion plan for invading Canada. So he's got a five-pronged invasion. He's going to have amphibious landings launched from Chicago and Cleveland, Detroit and Buffalo. And all these groups will converge and then march on Toronto. And Sweeney's hope is that what's going to happen is that the British will move their troops out of Montreal to Toronto, leaving it exposed. And then he's going to have a 17,000-man army go right up through the Lake Champlain Valley seize Montreal, seize Quebec City, and then they'll have a chokehold on the St. Lawrence River, which is the lifeline in and out of, of Canada. So this is a plan that had been tried in the War of 1812. He's pretty much trotting out the same playbook here, um, again, with the same assumptions that once they cross over, they're going to get all this support on the Canadian side. And uh, what happens is that... Uh, the plan is uh, launched in mid-May of 1866. Uh, so members of the Fenian Brotherhood who have formed different regiments across the country, uh, men from as far as New Orleans, get the letter from Sweeney to start mobilizing their forces. And one of the men who receives this is John O'Neill. And he is in charge of a regiment of the Army of the Irish Republic in Nashville, Tennessee. John O'Neill was born in Ireland. He saw firsthand the horrors of the Great Hunger on his family farm. He saw the local, his local town decline in population by 20%. John O'Neill was uh, taught by his grandfather at a young age stories of great members of the O'Neill clan who rose up against the English, um, men like Hugh O'Neill and Owen Rowe O'Neill, who were famous um, not because they defeated the English by bringing uh, freedom to Ireland, but because they dared to fight at all. So O'Neill is really drawn into this Irish Republican uh, you know, tales as, as a young boy. And then after, after going through the Great Hunger, so he'll come to America. He will fight in the Civil War. And then afterwards, he only becomes a member of the Fenian Brotherhood when he finds out about this plan of attacking Canada. And so when John O'Neill gets his orders, he shows up in Cleveland to be part of this amphibious invasion across Lake Erie. And when he gets to Cleveland, he finds out what Sweeney's finding out, and that is the plan is starting to fall apart even before it could start. And that's because it's been rushed into operation. Sweeney wanted to wait until wintertime to do this whole operation when they could cross over rivers, frozen rivers and have much easier transit. Uh, but it was rushed into operation because of this utter failure in uh, Camp Bello Island. There was fears that the whole Fenian Brotherhood was going to fall apart. Um, they needed a victory, so they rushed it into into operation. But again, it's been uh, it's it, what's really ironic is the Fenian Brotherhood was basically banned by the Catholic Church because it was a secret society. Initially, you had to take an oath. By 1863, it was no longer a secret society. Uh, yet the Catholic Church kept up its ban throughout into the 1870s, saying it was a secret society, when the thing that the, the Phoenix could not do was keep a secret. So everything they did was known by American spies, by the British spies. The it was in the newspapers. So, you know, John, you know, there's in the newspapers, these guys are getting on trains going to, Can you know, going up towards the northern border. So... It's starting to fall apart, and uh, so John O'Neill is told to go to Buffalo, and 
at that point, Sweeney's got 800 men in Buffalo, and his attitude is, all right, we got 800 men in Buffalo. Let's just get across. Once we get into Canada again, everyone in the United States and Canada will see we're serious about this operation and come pouring in. So John O'Neill happens to be the right man at the right time. He's the highest ranking man that can be found there. And this has been his life's calling because he had written that it is, you know, basically is the calling of his life. Uh, outside of his duty to his God was to be at the head of an Irish army fighting against England for Ireland's rights. And so he's the man that leads this 800-man army across the Niagara River on, in the early morning hours of June 1st, 1866, and plants the Irish flag onto British soil. Wow. Uh, and that would be the common refrain after that, again, as the high watermark. Remember Ridgeway, they, the Fenians tried to raise money off of it. Um, you just brought up an interesting point about the Catholic Church and at least the leadership of the Catholic Church. And it's, I think at some point in your book, the the Catholic Church, particularly the Pope, had a relationship with the government of Great Britain and was not going. They, they were not going to support the Fenians. And uh, it was fascinating, especially as somebody who is not that as familiar with uh, Irish history, that. The Fenians very quickly uh, learned to just not listen to their priests. I mean, they, they, their their revolution and their their meetings happened outside of their religion in, in the Catholic churches. Yeah, and this comes out of the, the Young Ireland Revolution of 1848 was um, it was an anti-clerical revolution. I mean, it right. was um, and it was not uh, sectarian. I mean, there were Protestants and Catholics who were involved and. Um, at that point, they saw that the church was not going to support the revolution. They were part of the established order, and they were okay with the way that things were in their position under British rule in Ireland. And the other thing that's going on at the same time is that the papal states are facing uh, rebels in Italy. Mm -hmm. So... You know they're not disposed to have any predisposition sure. yep. towards uh, rebels of of any stripe in any place in in the country, and you know the 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 Fenians are wondering, well, the Pope's trying to recruit us to go to Italy to fight for the papal states against the rebels, but no support for our cause here, and you know they, they just see that disconnect, and that would happen in America too. The the archbishops would be preaching against the Fenian brotherhoods and telling their men not to attend Fenian rallies, and um, they ignored them. I mean, there was one case in early 1866. There was a rally that was planned for um, a Sunday in New York City, and that morning in St. Patrick's Cathedral, Old St. Patrick's, the archbishop is thundering to his congregation, do not go to this uh, rally and a hundred thousand people show up right to it. right yep. so mm -hmm. i mean it's um you know i i think it's this ant the, the rebellion is rooted in this anti-establishment anti-clerical roots of young ireland and it sort of persists when they come to america and a lot of their writings have to do with setting up a republic that is that separates church and state so mm -hmm. so it, it yeah. makes complete sense uh just talk a little bit about um you know, again, we, we mentioned that the, the Fenians were uh, probably a little over-optimistic when they invaded Canada and the support that they would get. And in fact, uh, there's a couple chapters, at least one chapter in your book that deals with how they really sort of brought the Canadians together and did a lot to sort of create the Canadian nation. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So... Um... I guess we should say that once John O'Neill crossed into Canadian territory, he was there for about 48 hours. And on June 2nd, he, there is a battle with a joint British and Canadian forces that's three times the size of his force. But he's got men who are experienced fighters from the Civil War. I mean, he's got men who are literally wearing Union blues and Confederate greys all together in this, in this rabble army that, that he has. But he's victorious at Ridgeway. Um, he then sees that there's no reinforcements and circles back to Fort Erie where there's another shootout. It's house-to-house -house combat, and again, the Fenians uh, emerge victorious. But O'Neill can look out on the Niagara River and see that American warships have cut any reinforcements and, and 
he is then forced to, to retreat. But in the wake of this, then this, it gives a real emphasis to this growing movement inside Canada for self-government. So it's called the Confederation Movement. And uh, after, you know, at the Battle of Ridgeway, there's about 20 men who, who die there. There's five uh, boys, basically, who are students at the University of Toronto who are among the dead. And so there's great anger in Canada, and there's wonder at why the British didn't do a better job of protecting their southern border from these invaders who are coming across it. And so uh, that, and also uh, the Campobello raid, too, actually uh, spurs a lot of uh, sort of swings popular support to these Confederation forces inside Canada. And basically, a little more than a year removed from the Battle of Ridgeway, uh, July 1st, 1867, is the first meeting of the new Canadian Parliament in Ottawa. And Ottawa is a small logging town, you know, just a backwater kind of place, but it's chosen rather than a more cosmopolitan city like Montreal or Toronto because it's far enough away from the southern border because there have just been these series of repeated attacks from from America. So, yeah, I mean, this is one of the ironies is that the Fenians do bring self-government to a, a part of the British Empire. It's just not the one that they intended. Right. Um, so, so there are a couple more raids that aren't successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then how does it, how does it, how does the Fenian movement in the U.S.? I, I don't think it ever came to an end completely, but how does it, how do, these raids come to an end? Yeah. So John O'Neill is really, and he's the central character throughout all these raids. So he'll be present, um, Throughout the, throughout the raids up until 1871. So he becomes the president of the Fenian Brotherhood. And after the Battle of Ridgeway, he's one of the most famous Irish Americans in the country. And it's interesting, uh, I was taking a look at a newspaper the other day. So after the Battle of Ridgeway, O'Neill would go around the country raising money for the Fenian Brotherhood, and they would put on sham battles. Of the, They would do these reenactments at the Battle of Ridgeway. So he comes to... Albany in 1867, and they have the Fenian Circle from Albany fight against the Fenian Circle from Troy in this reenactment of the Battle of Ridgeway. And this sham battle was at these Fenian picnics were a way to raise money, and O'Neill will take over the organization. But he will never let go of this idea of attacking Canada. So he tries in 1870 an invasion from uh, Vermont into, into Quebec, and it's just an utter disaster. Uh, His men are just routed at the border. He is arrested on the battlefield by a United States Marshal and put in jail. He is uh, convicted. He is given a pardon by President Grant under the condition that he promises never to invade Canada again. And whether he meant it or not, uh, he said that he would not do it again. But he does. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, he, he... I can't decide whether he's a sort of a character from a tragic character from like Shakespearean play or just uh, from a comic opera, because then in 1871, he basically gets a group of three dozen men from St. Paul, Minnesota. They go up to the border in North Dakota to cross into Manitoba. So his force uh, seizes a, Canadian Custom House and a uh, an outpost of the Hudson's Bay Company. And then he looks out the window and sees that a United States Army force comes and arrests them, and he can't understand how a United States Army force had the authority to go into Canada to arrest him. Unbeknownst to him, the border had been resurveyed, <laughs> and he is not he never actually crossed into Canada at all. Uh, the border was when it was resurveyed, it was discovered that those buildings were actually in American territory, so he can't even be arrested for violating neutrality laws because he never made it to, to Canada. And even after that, he he then founds these, out. he starts these Irish-American settlements out in Nebraska, um, out on the prairie, and it's still, I think, in the back of his right. mind that, yep. you know, I'm away from authorities here, and I'm going to put together like an army out here in the plains that someday we'll we'll go back to to Canada. But what really is is choking the lifeblood out of the Fenian movement is um, 
it was anglophobia really was its lifeblood. And that dissipates as time goes by after the Civil War. The anger towards Great Britain starts to subside. And then when the Alabama claims were really finally settled in early of 18, or I think it's 1871 with the Treaty of Washington, um, American government's got no more use for these guys. They, they, they've gotten the money that they want from right. Great Britain. So there's no more backing. Uh, the American public's kind of sick of it. You know, the vets of the Civil War starting to move on. They're getting jobs. So the movement just starts to really lose its momentum the further away you get from the Civil War and that animosity towards Great Britain. How does this movement, and I think this is sort of the main point of your book, how does this movement connect to ultimate independence in Ireland? Uh, there are a lot of heroes created in this movement. Uh, O'Neill desperately wanted to be mm-hmm. one of them, and in a way, he was. Uh, he had his. He wanted his legacy to be. He fought the British, and I think he died on a battlefield. And you said he accomplished at least half of that. Uh, he right. did not die on a battlefield. Uh, how does this bring about, or at least is connected to independence? So this framework that James Stevens and John Omani will put together with the. Irish Americans raising money and weapons and supplying those to the Irish back in Ireland uh, is the framework that will ultimately prove successful with the Easter Rising in 1916 that will sort of be the launching point for the eventual creation of the Irish Free State, which will lead to to the Irish Republic. So when the Easter Rising is launched in 1916, so important is the money and the weapons that are raised in America that when the Irish proclamation is read outside the general post office in Dublin, very prominent in the document is a reference to Ireland's exiled children in America and their role in making this happen. So it's, it's that framework that will be really crucial to the Irish independence movement. And it's, it was still you know, during the troubles in Northern Ireland in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, pretty much the same playbook was being used where, you know, you would have money being raised for the IRA here in the United States and weapons and being set, sent to Northern Ireland. And I think it's interesting to note that the army that John O'Neill led into Ireland in 1870, 1871, they called themselves the Irish Republican Army. So they wore green uniforms or buttons on their uniforms, said IRA. Um, there's not a through line between that IRA and the IRA that we know today, but there is mm-hmm. between the IRB that James Stevens founded and the IRB was still around during the time of the Easter Rising, and that's sort of the, you know the revolutionary movement that would um, that would see 26 of the 32 counties freed in in Ireland. So I, it's that it's that framework that they erect that is so crucial. And the way I I close the book is. Uh, Eamon de Valera, who is, you know, probably the foremost Irish Republican of the 20th century, be president of Ireland, prime minister, you know, he just spans the time from the East. He's there at the Easter Rising. He's there in 1963 to shake President Kennedy's hand when he comes to Ireland. He's, he's the foremost figure. So when he is in the United States 100 years ago in 1919, he does a tour to raise money in the United States. And he will go to Omaha, Nebraska, where John O'Neill is buried, and lay a wreath at his grave because uh, he recognized the role that the the Fenians played in keeping this revolutionary fire alive. They took the torch of revolution from the Young Ireland Movement in 1848. They were able to keep it alive so it wasn't extinguished and eventually be passed off to the generation who would uh, lead the Easter Rising in 1916. How much work does a book like this take? I mean, this is this has got to be a tremendous amount of work, not just the research, which is thorough and, and everything's there, but the work in taking that and creating such a story out of it. I mean, how much of it is 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 hard work? And I know that's there. And how much of it is just, just you're a good writer? I mean, yeah, yeah. is there something you could say about that? Yeah, I mean, it's this book was a challenge. I mean, it took probably it was a good two years project to, to do. Um, you know, and the research is always the fun part. The writing is always the okay. the, the torturous part of it. My previous book was a biography of um, an Irish-American boxer named John L. Sullivan. And with a biography, it's pretty straightforward in terms of how you're going to organize it. You know, mm-hmm. you start with a birth and you're going to 
go chronologically until a death. Uh, this was a lot more challenging for me to, to outline because I've got different characters coming in and out of the story. I've got events unfolding in Ireland at the same time they're unfolding in Canada, the United States, you know, and then trying to sort of create this through line in the story and, and have it move chronologically was a challenge. So that was sort of the biggest obstacle I found in writing was, all right, you know, how am I going to tell this story where John O'Neill is really the one through line in the story, but he doesn't really show up until about right. page 100 of this of a 300-page story. So that, that was the challenge for me was, all right, how am I balancing it, the story if I got about maybe six or seven real big characters and, and events unfolding on multiple continents? So that was the big challenge. Are you the kind of writer who... I mean, because I know a few that they're just never happy with with <laughs> the line or the par- oh, this paragraph is terrible. I mean, is it at some point that you just have to let it go, or uh, or is it you wait until you have every word where you want it? Uh, no, because um, I think I finally hit maybe the fourth deadline on the book. Okay. So uh, you know, when you're writing out, that of helps a, speed when you have a little up. bit of panic behind right. you, I think. Um, you know, you, you want to get it, you know that you can't labor over it that long and, and maybe craft it as fine because you can work on a book forever. I mean, mm-hmm. you could just sit yes. there and make it a project. So you have to be willing at some point to say, all right, I've, I think I've told the story. I like how this has turned out. I think we're in a good spot. And then luckily when I'm, you know, if I'm work, working on this project with a good editor who's going to go through there and tell me, you know, here are all the sections that we need to cut out. This is bogging it down. And, you know, these are the sections that we really want us to focus in on and, and give a good rewrite. That's immensely valuable in the project too. Uh, what's What's next? Anything? I'm not sure yet. Okay. I'm not sure yet. So um, there is another Irish-American story in, in the Gilded Age that I'm considering, but okay. I'm not I'm not sure if that's going to be the one or, or not, so we'll see. Well, uh, Christopher Klein, please grab his book, When the Irish Invaded Canada, The Incredible True Story of the Civil War Veterans Who Fought for Ireland's Freedom. Uh, you have a website. You can get the you can The website is Christopher klein.com i believe yes, yes i'm yes, sorry yeah christopher klein.com uh and i just want to thank the irish american heritage museum here in albany on broadway uh please check it out it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful little building there are a lot of resources we're in the library right now um and uh please come down here please check out christopher klein's book thank you very much thanks sir Special thanks to Christopher Klein and the Irish American Heritage Museum. The excerpt you heard at the beginning of the podcast is from Christopher Klein's book, When the Irish Invaded Canada, one of many great stories in the book. I'd also like to thank my brother Bill Tony for performing and recording The Wearing of the Green, the music you heard at the beginning of the podcast and you're hearing right now. You can subscribe to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, and you can learn more about the Capital District Civil War Roundtable by visiting our website, capitaldistrictcivilwar.org.